entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. My name is Roger, sir. May I be of some help? That's funny. My name is Roger. Two Rogers don't make a right. <laughs> Roger, I have a problem. Yes. I've been in L.A. for three months now. I have money. I have taste. But I'm not on anybody's A-list, and Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week for me. Well, a Ferrari would certainly change that. Perhaps. Hmm. But, you know, this is the one. Yes. Yes, yes. I saw three of these parked outside the local Starbucks this morning, which tells me only one thing. There's too many self-indulgent wieners in this city with too much bloody money. Now, if I was driving a 1967 275 GTB Borkham... You would not be a self-indulgent wiener, sir. You would be a connoisseur. Precisely. Champagne would fall from the heavens, doors would open, velvet robes would part. I don't have one here. However, I... You have one in the warehouse. Superb. What else do you have in the warehouse? And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat! Again? Nothing up my sleeve! Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope Hi, this really is Sam Posey. Racing driver, writer, architect... Tune in for Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreetMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows... 604 or 5 or 6, somewhere around there. Uh, check out NostalgicRadioCars.com, our archive page. Good evening, Bobby. How are you this evening? I'm doing just fine. How about yourself? Wow, just a lot of really cool car stuff going on. Hey, we got uh, the, the uh, vintage races, HSR, Sebring's coming up here pretty soon, Bear Jackson down here in uh, South Florida. We've got, I can't think of it, something about... Uh, Foreign cars across the pond. It's something else going on down there in uh, South Florida, but I'll get that straight, too. But anyway, hey, guys, you're uh, welcome to the show. You're tuning into Nostalgic Getting Cars. We've got a very exciting show tonight. We've got a very special guest. we got part two with our really, really, really good friend and world-renowned car designer, Peter Brock. So I think probably what we got to do, Bobby, since this is uh, – I, I just have loads and loads of questions. I truly enjoy – I mean, talking to Peter Brock is a history lesson. Because this is what makes Nostalgic Radio and Cars so special, ladies and gentlemen, uh, sports car people, 
car fans, is because it's nostalgic radio and cars. We are so fortunate that some of these legends are still around, that were around back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, and they did all this really cool stuff. These were the guys that were the pioneers. These were the guys that were there at the beginning when all our really cool car stuff started to take place. And I'm just delighted to be able to have these people, these legends on our show, that we can share these priceless, priceless stories with. So uh, I, I just, without further ado, Bobby, let's go ahead and fire up the turntable. Let's play a little music, and we'll get our special guest on the show. And it's time to introduce our very, very special guests. And uh, as I introduced him once before, he is one of America's foam foremost automobile designers. I'm delighted to welcome back to Nostalgic Doing Cars, an alumni guest and a good friend of mine, and someone I hold in high, high, high regards, Peter Brock. Peter, how are you this evening? Hey, I'm great. Everything is good out here in, uh, in, the, in the West and uh, busy as ever. Well, you know... When you when you first started the uh, um, Aero Vault, was that just like uh, you built that for yourself, and then it just turned in? It was a hobby that just kind of like uh, or a project that just, just turned into a full fledged business. Yeah, that that was it. I mean, I I had I needed a trailer, and I you know started looking on the market for something, and I I couldn't believe how crude everything was out there, and and so poorly thought out. Um, for the particular use of, of hauling automobiles. Obviously, standard trailers are great when you're packing big square boxes in and you want to get as much in the space as you can. But if you look at a standard trailer and you put a car in it, there's, you know, uh, 50% of it is air, you know, and there's no point in hauling air around the road if you want. So you want to cut that frontal area down so that it doesn't cost you enough to, to uh, haul it worthless air <laughs> so I, I tell one for myself you know i just couldn't find anything out there and and uh, it turned out other people needed it as well and it you know slowly grew into a, our, our business the design now okay now i know you're a former race car guy a race car driver a team owner uh you truly understand aerodynamics so when you came up with this how many times did you pencil this before you came up with something you really liked uh when I de- sat down to do it, I do what I usually do. I 
penciled it out, and then I built myself a model. Okay. Uh, actually, you know, out of oh, about quarter scale, and because in, in making it at that time, I didn't have any uh, uh, place to get a, a roof made, you know, with all the uh, compound curves and everything I needed, so I had to make it all in uh, in flat panels. So uh, I made made the whole thing out of cardboard, you know, and, and glued it together. It took me a couple of days to figure out what I wanted to do with it. And then, you know, I started looking around for somebody to build it. And I, you know, I went to several of the major trailer manufacturers and they, they all looked at me like I was out of my mind. But uh, I happened to see a guy that uh, was building very nice custom built trailers for rodeo cowboys. And uh, these guys all needed special stuff on their trailers. So I searched him out. He was up in British Columbia and showed him what I wanted to do. And he said, yeah, I I can do that. So that's the way we built the first one. So the template, now, you know, like when we talk about the old school, the old days, uh, you know, cars, aluminum prototypes that were built out of wooden bucks, you know, like you did with the the Daytona Coupe. Um, Then there was clay modeling. You know, and like you said, they always build a, a, a scale model to get an idea. When you first, the first design, was it, did you have all those radiuses in the ceilings and around the front and, and towards the back and everything like that? Or did that something, did that evolve? Well, it, uh, everything that I could take out of, make out of a flat panel, you know, for example, the whole rounded front was simply taking a flat panel and rounding it all off, but it was still two-dimensional. And, uh... So in making the roof, I had to make it out of a number of different sections. And by cutting that all out of strips out of, uh, you know, cardboard and gluing it together, I could see what the structure was. And the important thing was is that, you know, when you look at the trailer, it's got these three big fins across the top of it. Those are not decorative. That's the actual structure, because if you look at the fins, they're actually in cross-section. They're a triangle which is the strongest section that you can put in a piece of metal. So by putting those three long strips of triangles down the roof, the structure was on the outside of the trailer, and I could lower the roof down on the inside really low so that the car wasn't carrying up a whole bunch of extra air in there. And by reducing that frontal area uh, and still giving the car some, or giving the trailer some uh, aesthetic look with the with the fins on it everybody thought it was pretty neat but they're actually the structure so the height wise can do i have to duck down when i go in your trailer or is it uh, uh you know six feet higher or high? the door maybe about four inches that's all because there, there's some there's some structure in the door top itself okay and once you get in you can stand up full size there's six feet of room on the inside and then we've made a, a new version of the trailer that's even taller uh, because we've got people that wanted to put some of the older uh, type of classic cars and stuff. For, for example, I got a couple guys with old Bentleys and stuff mm-hmm. wouldn't have fit in our original trailer. So we made another one that was simply the same trailer, but was 11 inches higher. And, you know, it, uh, I can now, you know, offer a really neat uh, trailer to the guys that have the old 44 rods and that kind of thing and, and old Bentley race cars, that sort of thing. So the trailer's uh, how long, 18 feet? Uh, about uh, almost a uh, little over 17 feet now. Okay. Now, what about the suspension on your trailer? Is that unique, too? I mean, did you give that some thought? 
Well, that's the, the best way that you can get the uh, amount of space on the inside because that's the critical dimension is the width on the inside, on you know, inside the fenders. Uh, you want to have as much as you can, but you still have to comply with the exterior dimensions, which is defined by law. So by using a, uh, a torsion flex suspension, uh, you know, you don't have to use a lot of, uh, you know, uh, semi-elliptic springs or anything like that. They're, the axles themselves have a, a torsion flex on the inside of them. You can get everything down really, really low. So uh, it was very interesting when I was uh, originally working with uh, uh, different air designers and stuff. I, I happened to you know get together with a guy named John Pointer, who was the guy that uh, designed all the original um, Superbirds and, and Chargers and stuff for, for Chrysler. Really? During that era when we had NASCAR cars, you know, when the high wings on the back end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I talked to him, you know, sometime after that period, and I, you know, had known him, and I saw him again. I said, John, what are you doing now? Because Chrysler was going through a difficult time, and they were, you know, trying to re redo the company and doing the, the very first little uh, uh, minivans. And I, and I said to him, I said, John, you know, this must be kind of boring for you after doing all the NASCAR cars. He says, well... He says it's kind of an interesting problem uh, aerodynamically because he says the main problem in drag on these things is the axles underneath the trailer. He says that creates the most amount. He says actually the minivan shape is actually quite efficient, but he says all that air going underneath and having all those axles exposed is creating a lot of drag. So I, I kept that in mind. So... One of the things that we did when we, when we started designing the AeroVault was we worked for a, a trailer system where we could fully skin the bottom of the trailer so that the air going underneath it was as smooth as possible. So it's actually a form of ground effects. Yep, yep. Because most trailers, if you look underneath them, I mean, they've got all that air structure of, you know, tubes and... and uh, squares and stuff hanging down and stuff and it's incredibly turbulent underneath there and anytime that you've got turbulence you're creating energy that's wasted so what you want to do is you want to make the air stay attached to the form as best you can to reduce the drag and that gives you great gas mileage interesting so that was the main thing on our trailer i wanted to reduce that uh you know drag on the trailer so that when you go cross country it doesn't you know, first of all, you don't want to know what's back there, and you don't want to have your mileage fall off. Um, wheels and tires, anything special about that on your trailers that makes it uh, more efficient or more unique? Absolutely. Uh, if you look at most trailers, um, they're pretty much limited to about, oh, 55 mile per hour, because when you reach that speed, you're pushing so much wind on a square front trailer that the engine is overworking or it's kicking down a gear that it uses a tremendous amount of fuel. So most trailer manufacturers put tires on on their trailers that are only good for about 50 mile, 50 mile per hour if you try to tow them any faster. And this is, you see it all the time on the highway. There are guys with trailers with blown tires. And the reason for that is by cheap, by making cheap tires, they blow out. Now, we put uh, N-rated tires on it, which is rated to 87 mile per hour. So consequently, you can tow an AeroVault all day long 
at 70 or 80 miles per hour and go along with the stream of traffic. Good. Um, now, let me ask you this. Let's back up a few years. After the racing, you got into building hang gliders. Yeah. And... I'm not. Ex- I can't recall exactly what got your interest in hang gliders. Did you actually ever do any hang gliding yourself? Oh, absolutely. Oh, you uh, did. That's that's what that's what got me into it. I was, you know, you have to go back in the history because I had already had my shop uh, uh, in uh, in El Segundo, California, which is just on the south side of the uh, of LA International Airport. And at that time, they were building a brand new power plant right at the end of the runway. And to build this runway, and it was right out on the beach area, they had to dig out this huge hole to to build all the foundation for this power plant. So in doing that, they had to move all of this sand over and make this gigantic sand dune uh, right on the south side of of the runway. Well, what had happened is about the same time a guy named Frank Vigallo had designed a parachute used to bring back uh, space capsules. And the advantage was is that basically it was a, 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 uh, a movable uh, direction parachute. You could control the direction on it. So, and it was a, a fairly loose thing of made two conical shapes. And what had happened is the... Uh, the hippies figured out, you know, that you could take and build a, a regalo glider using, you know, visqueen plastic, some bamboo tape, uh, bamboo tubes, and uh, you know, duct tape, and you could build this really fun glider, and you could, you know, run off the top of the sand dune, and you could get a flight of, you know, fifty to a hundred yards all the way down to the beach, and it was a, you know, it was a really fun thing going on at that time. I was driving home one day back to my shop, which was in El Segundo, just a few blocks from there, and saw this going on with these kids, you know, hauling these funny-looking, you know, this green and, and duct tape gliders up to the top field. So I stopped and, and walked up in, and watched, and it was really fun. So it was a lot of work to haul the glider back up from the beach, you know. <laughs> and so one of these hippies comes up to the top field, and he's all out of breath, and he says, damn, he says, you want to try it next time? i got to take a rest. And I like he expected me to sit, jump in and fly it. I said, I have no idea how, how, what do you do to do this? It sure looks like a lot of fun. So he explained how to control a hang glider. You know, there's a control bar underneath it and you hang from the center of gravity on it and you push out to stall it and you pull it back in to make it dive. And that's the way you control it. So the nice thing about it is that the sand dune was about the same as the glide ratio on these early hang gliders. So that if you ran off the sand dune and you did something stupid, you couldn't fall more than five or ten feet because you you flew into the same glide angle as the, as the sand dune. Okay. So you could go, you know, 100 yards, but never be more than, you know, five or ten feet off the ground, and uh, you couldn't get hurt. So it was a lot of fun. So he explained the whole thing to me, and I hooked into it and ran off the top and made this long flight all the way down to the beach and it was the most exhilarating thing I'd ever done. I said, this has got to be the more fun than anything that I've ever done. Better than even driving race cars. Wow. So I, I haul the thing back up to the top of the hill and, you know, thank him profusely. And he says, oh, anytime, come on out. So I, you know, came out the next couple of days and started watching them fly and looked at the different gliders and how they were building them and stuff. And, I mean, they were 
really uh, just the crudest things you can imagine. Uh, it didn't cost anything. And I thought, well, you know, they have to have ways to attach all this, you know, hardware on the cables and stuff. And it was all done so badly. So I went back and I designed a whole bunch of little hardware to make a kit so these guys could make the gliders, you know, safer because I didn't want to see them breaking cables or anything on it and fall down because now they were telling me that they were going out into the mountains and they were flying off these mountains. And I said, that that's a, a lot more dangerous because you're not falling into the sand dunes. And they said, oh, no, you got to come out with us to, to a place called uh, Temecula or... Uh, uh, over Lake Elsinore, we fly off of there, and I said, "Well, how, how are you?" He said, "Oh, we're about a thousand feet off." I says, "You got to be kidding! You're flying these things at a thousand feet?" He says, "Yeah, it's easy. You just fly off. There's a restaurant up there at the top, and we jump off out there." And I said, "God, that's that's too dangerous. I don't think I could do that." So I went back, as I said, and I designed all this hardware so that uh, we could build, you know, some safer gliders. So I took this little you know, packet of hardware that I designed and, and hauled it out there. And all these guys came around. They were all excited about it. Said, God, that is the coolest thing about it. You know, I said, well, you know, I can make these up for you. And uh, you can build some safe gliders. They said, great, how much? I said, oh, maybe five or six bucks. Five or six bucks? God, what a ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> they were used to building everything for nothing. Yeah. So, you know, here I did all this hardware and the kit you know, make the hardware with nothing. So I went back and built my own glider, and I took it out there. And, of course, everybody thought that was really a cool glider, so people wanted some more gliders. So I went and found a couple of guys that uh, made sales for the sailboat industry working for me, and we laid out a, a special place to make sales and, and started building a high-tech glider. And that was really the birth of, of real hang gliding in the United States. Wow! Already started down in in Australia, but they hadn't any places really to jump off like we did. So what they did is they towed them behind speedboats, and uh, they did you know tow ups on them, and they were towing over water. And so these two schools got together, the Australian guys and our guys, and we began to build bigger gliders and expand the wingspan on them, and they got higher and faster, and and uh, so that's the way the whole hang glider industry started. So you were actually a proponent of the hang gliding industry as well, then? Absolutely, yep. We were the, and there were like three companies in the United States at that time building hang gliders, a company called iPerformance, a company called Seagull, and my company, which was called Ultralight Products. What was it called? Yeah. Ultralight Products. Ultra, oh, really? Letters, UP. You know, so on the side of a truck, it just said UP, up. And that was for our logo for it. And... Uh, so uh, the sport really took off because we had some nice places to fly farther down in the Playa del Rey. And as soon as you could fly there and there was enough wind coming up and uh, the updrafts off, off the cliffs down there, you could maintain flight. So over the next few months, you know, it wasn't just a matter of flying down to the water. It was a matter of flying in the updraft back and forth along the cliffs. And... Uh, Pretty soon, you know, we could stay up, you know, for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. So then a couple of friends of mine took some of the stuff over to Hawaii, and they've got fabulous, fabulous cliff flying over there. And uh, now you could take off on the, you know, on the, over the ocean over there and fly for miles, you know, back and forth across these cliffs out there. 
and you're flying, you know, a thousand, two thousand feet or whatever and staying up for as long as you wanted. So eventually, I mean, we set the world's endurance record over there over more than 24 hours. Uh, you know, you take off and flight for 24 hours <laughs> because the winds were so good. So from that point, uh, now that the gliders had that kind of sustainability, we started taking them out to the mountains, and that's the guys started catching thermals. And then it was a matter of being able to climb in the thermals, and you could start getting more and more altitude. So, you know, pretty soon we were two and three and 4,000 feet, and then taken off and starting to fly cross-country. So the whole sport just developed, you know, right there on the beach uh, next to my shop. That's amazing. Now, out of curiosity, how strong is the sport to this day? Is it still uh, a very popular sport? Absolutely. But what's happened is, is that now, uh, I mean, one of the biggest problems with owning a hang glider at that time is that you've got this long thing made out of all these uh, tubes. So you've got to have, you know, a, a long roof rack and stuff to carry it. And if you happen to live in an apartment or stuff, there's no way to store it. So what happened is that at the same time we were doing this, we were also thinking from a safety standpoint how to make these gliders safer because if you had a mid-air collision with another glider, and this is happening with more guys who are flying, you get out in the thermal and there may be four or five guys all circling in the thermal climbing up, and if you had a, a mid-air collision, you were going to lose some guys. So a lot of our guys were parachute guys and they were also building parachutes out in Lake Elsinore. Oh. Those guys started making uh, backpack type parachutes that you could take with you on a hang glider and if you had either a problem of hitting somebody or possibly getting into some real heavy turbulence which might break the glider, you could toss out the parachute and it would bring it down to the ground safely. So that whole thing of safety developed at the same time and then these guys were developing uh, uh, into these special high-performance um, parachutes that you could fly with. And they were, you know, going up to places like Yosemite and jumping off the cliffs out there and then flying down. And their, and their performance parachutes got bigger and bigger until they finally started making them double surface with air going in the front of the parachute and inflating the wing. And they ended up getting these beautiful, beautiful wings, and you could hang underneath these things, and they were getting the same performance as we were getting with the hang gliders. Oh, okay. The advantage was that you could take one of these so-called, you know, uh, high-performance parachutes and pack it up all up in a, in, a, uh, in a backpack, and you could store it in your apartment. So that made it really, really popular. And so now there are more people flying those than hang gliders. And the performance on them is such now that, you know, they're getting incredible long flights. And uh, so it's become, you know, a popular sport all over the world, any place that you have good good conditions. Uh, now, you got to understand, I mean, no people, when you start saying you're going to fly these things, you know, over thousands of feet, they didn't realize, you know, we are now getting up to 15,000 feet and we're flying 300 miles. So... You're having international contests in different places in the world, uh, and it, it's, it's like a week-long contest. Every day you have a different contest. Either it's out and back, or maybe a triangular course, or it's a speed to a destination or stuff. So it's just like sailplane competition. So you have to understand about weather. You have to understand 
you know, how to make the thing more efficient all the time. So this whole sport has just, you know, grown into a tremendously wonderful sport of flying. And it's available to anybody who wants to, you know, have something that they can put their airplane, you know, store it in their apartment. <laughs> well, you know, I was trying to think, because when you were talking about, you know, jumping off the cliffs and going back and forth, this is going back in the early days, you know, because I know what it's like down when you get south of Temecula and La Jolla and out in that area there, because it is kind of cliffy. And um, so what comes to mind is sailing and tacking. You know how we, when you sail, you tack left and right, so when you're going in and then you flip around and you go back the other direction, and, you know, you, and, you, and the whole idea is to catch the wind, you know, to move the sail. So... Does that same principle apply to the hang gliders? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very much having to do it. But the main thing that you're getting that's different with a hang glider is that instead of just having a singular direction from the wind, you now have the advantage of thermals. So okay. So these big bubbles of air that are rising off the, off the, the desert floor or, the, or the, wherever the floor is that you're flying. And, uh, you know, you now we've developed uh, came from the from the sailplane industry. You have a small instrument that you take with you called a variometer that tells you whether you're going up or down. Because when you're flying on a hang glider, once you get over several hundred feet, you cannot tell if the glider is going up or down if it's doing it very gradually. But if you fly into a thermal, you can instantly feel it because the, the glider wants to turn and go up, and this instrument will tell you what your rate of climb is. Now, some thermals are really strong. You know, they'll have a 1,000 foot per, or 2,000 foot per minute climb rate. Oh. And what you want to do is you want to find the center of that thermal. Now, a thermal can be, you know, as big as a house or something, or it can be, you know, a quarter mile wide. depends on the conditions that you're getting into. And you want to find the center of that thermal, and that will give you the most amount of lift, and you can climb out on it. Now, the thing with the hang glider is you don't have a great glide ratio because once you leave the thermal, it's only going to fly down at maybe 8 or 10 ratio of 10 to 1. In other words, it'll go 10 feet in distance for every foot that it drops. So you're going to not be able to go very far. So the first thing you've got to do when you're up there is you want to look and see where else you can see on the, on the, on the horizon where there's more lift. And the ideal thing is you get what's called a cloud street. Because if the, what happens with a the thermal is it climbs and climbs and climbs out, that hot air as it rises cools, and it cools at a rate of about three degrees per thousand feet. So as you get up, you know, several thousand feet, it cools off and it forms a cloud. So when you look at a cloud out there, that's the top of a thermal. Oh. Ideal conditions, you get what's called a cloud street, and that's when you have two, you know, main uh, weather conditions meeting and it forms a long row of clouds for a long way so you can get underneath that cloud street and you can streak along with it sucking you up at the same time you're going down and you can go 60 70 100 miles that way so it's a it's a really great sport i don't think there's anything more exciting than in a hang glider you get out there and you hook into a really strong thermal it's giving you a 2,000 foot per minute climb rate and you just circle really tightly and you keep getting higher and higher which of course freezes your ass off <laughs> you get up so high that you know it's very very cold so when you're going into international competition and you're on the ground you're actually in a in a in a snowmobile suit you know this thing all super warm 
but you're on the ground and it's probably 80, 90, 100 degrees where the best conditions are. So you're sweating inside that. And then when you take off, you start climbing and it gets colder and colder and colder. And now you're trying to stay warm and all that sweat now. <laughs> Turns to ice. It's freezing in, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. It's better than being out there in the, in the open with no uh, protection at all. What's the highest altitude you ever flew yourself? I think I've been up to about 11,000 feet, uh, and I think the greatest distance I've gone is maybe 100 miles or something. But the top pilots that I had flying on my team, they're, they're doing 15,000 and going 300 miles. So you actually had a team, like you do, like your race car team? You had a hang glider team? Absolutely. We're flying international. Every hang glider manufacturer had its own team of top pilots. No kidding. Now, and, and guys are, are making gliders in, in Italy and, and uh, Wales and, and England and Germany. And so when you meet for these international competitions, you've got guys coming in from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, whatever. And we're all flying against each other. And having a great time. It's just a fabulous international competition. Did you have any idea it was going to evolve in that, or is it just something that's just like, hey, let's run with it. We just keep going, just like the trailer business, basically, right? It just it just grew out of nothing and, and grew into a huge business. And we ended up being the largest hang glider manufacturer in the world for a while. Wow. So whatever happened, did you sell that business? Is that what you did? I It, it got into a problem with product liability, because when you got all these gliders flying, there are people out there that do stupid things like flying into power lines and yep. killing themselves. And you have a very angry families that you want to sue you out of business. So finally it got to the point where you just, you know, you're spending all your money trying to pr- protect yourself legally and you can't do it. Now, you, you don't have that problem in other countries. So people are still making, you know, great gliders in other places, but it's a very difficult business here in the United States because of product liability. Hmm. Well, let's go back to, let's come down to earth here for a second. Let's go back to the, the mid-50s when you were, late 50s, when you were uh, working for General Motors and uh, under Bill Mitchell, and we kind of talked a little bit about uh, Harley Earl, but where I wanted to go with this is this is Woman History Month, and we had Judy Stropus on a while back, and uh, yeah. and and so I want to kind of talk a little bit about uh, Harley Earl and his is it damsels of design or something like that. There was he was very very instrumental in getting women involved, women designers involved in designing certain aspects of the automobile as well as appliances because you know like ford owned philco gm owned frigidaire as an example okay so what 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 what, you were there at that time what did you see well the most important thing to understand about harley early he was a visionary and he changed the world of automotive design almost single-handedly because prior to that point automobiles had been designed by people who were engineers and that there was no real aesthetic interest in making an automobile beautiful in the United States. That was already happening in Europe, but it wasn't here. So when Earl came in and uh, the, the head of General Motors had gone out to Los Angeles and that Earl at that time was working for his father in the Pasadena area, they had a body shop out there and they were making custom bodies for people in the movie industry. So they, had, they were making these gorgeous-looking automobiles. So when uh, uh, the chairman of the board, Mr. Sloan, at that time, saw these cars and saw the talent with this young kid there, he, he asked him to come back to General Motors 
and start a, a small area which they call the art and color design and start designing cars from an aesthetic standpoint that and Earl understood that the appeal of an automobile to the American public was more than just driving. It had to reflect a person's status or who they were or whatever. So he figured out this whole marketing approach that you would start with an inexpensive car. And then as you got more, you know, uh, established in business, you'd move up to the next car and the next car and the next car. So with the different marks that were within Chevrolet, you'd start off with a Chevrolet, within General Motors, you'd start off with a Chevrolet or move up to a Buick or an Oldsmobile, and finally do a Cadillac. Now, each of these cars had to have its own particular style, so one didn't look like another. So that became the whole styling thing. It wasn't so much about efficient automobiles, it was what they looked like and how they struck the, the uh, public opinion. So, you know, it, it got to be more and more exotic, you know, and, and of course, he, it's amazing things like started, you know, with the first Cadillac with little fins on the back end in 1948 and ended up in 1959 with these giant fins on the on the back of the Cadillacs and stuff. So it was that transition of, of educating the people and creating each year a new model that was exciting. Now, at, at the same time, you had to make better and better interiors. So what better way than hiring some gals that were really top interior designers? So he began to hire some women to come in to handle the interior design on the automobiles. And the first group of them, were about eight of them, they're really great gal designers, uh, became the damsels of design and heavily promoted by General Motors because they were appealing to the the, the female market for, because women were buying as many cars. So the fact that they had women designing cars and created an interest in the, in the, in the women market. Interesting. So did uh, the, so you as a designer yourself, did you have any uh, interaction with any of these ladies that were these, uh, des- these interior designers that were working at General Motors at the time? Well, of course, we all worked with them at all, and, and there were some really great-looking gals. And I had <laughs> my eye on one gal that was really super-looking gal, and she was a good designer, and I was trying to figure out how am I ever going to get to get this gal and go out with me. And then she suddenly disappeared. And I wondered, where the heck did she go? Oh, God. Well, she married another designer who eventually they move over to Europe and he became the head designer at Porsche. <laughs> oh, okay, Porsche. Um, okay, let's say Zora Dundoff. You worked with Zora. And I think yep. the last time we had this little conversation, I kind of wanted you to draw, you know, here's a racer. And, and I don't know if he was an engineer, okay, but he was a racer that understood cars and understood mechanics and understood... Let's just say design and function of a car. Okay, Carol Shelby, very similar. You, of course, fit into that category as well, but you are a designer. Okay, so from your perspective, you step out of the circle and you look at Carol Shelby and Sora Dundoff. Can you draw some analogies? Just just some comparisons. You know, good stuff. You know, pros and cons. I'm we're we're cool with that. Well, they're completely different characters and different you know uh, abilities. Okay. Carol was a salesman. Okay. He was a visionary and a guy that could take 
any group of people and project an idea for uh, how to do something and extract money. That was his talent. He was had no taste at all in automobiles at all. Really? No, not at all. <laughs> but he knew how to pick the right people that could do certain things for him. Okay. So when he was looking for, you know, build a race team, he hired all the best mechanics he could in Southern California and had the best racing team in the world. And of course, that was headed up by Phil Remington, who was one of the greatest, you know, self-taught engineers in racing. Um, so that was his skill was picking the right people, putting the right team together, and then going out and finding the money because he operated on a social stratus very much at the top with, you know, great country clubs all over the country and stuff like that and new top people in business and could just extract money to build things. And that's the way he put everything together. Zora Duntoff was another fabulous character who had all kinds of different talent. And uh, he was, you know, an engineer as well. But uh, uh, he was also had the ability to take an engineering group and convince them that it was really necessary to keep improving things to make them better and better because he'd done this in Europe. He had worked for Allard. He'd worked for Porsche uh, on com- continually improving their automobiles and making them more competitive. And he understood the value of success in motorsports. So when he came to work at General Motors, he saw the potential in the very first Corvette, which was an idea that Harley Earl had put together. And Harley had no idea on how to build a, you know, a sports car, but he knew how to make something that was good looking. So the very first Corvettes were kind of flashy and good looking, but they were all built out of parts off the shelf, you know, with an old six-cylinder motor on it and a two-speed automatic transmission. Hardly anything that anybody who was interested in sports cars wanted to have anything to do with. Zora saw this at the New York Auto Show when it was first uh, debuted, and he came to General Motors, and he convinced people at, at General Motors and Chevrolet that he could come in and transform that car and make it a really competitive automobile. And that's what he spent his life doing at General Motors. He could continue improving the, the Corvette, and that's why Harley Earl was really the father of the Corvette, but the guy that really made it improve all the way across was uh, Zora Duntoff. When the Stingray design came out, how did that happen? Because now we've got this, let's just call them, for argument's sake, the C1 Corvettes, okay? They're, they're early rounded cars. The Stingray, yep. the 63 body style, the, what we call, refer to most of us, we call, refer to it the mid-year. When you came up with that concept, what was the inspiration for, for it? What did, Was it something you just kind of like had in the back of your head you were just toying around with? Or did Bill Mitchell at the time say, hey, look, I want something really sleek and, and, and cool, go to work. You've got to understand that, that the, the Corvette program had actually failed at General Motors simply because it didn't have the engineering that it needed to compete in the American market. It came out and Ford saw that there was a real market for a nice personal car, not a real sports car, and they came out with a Thunderbird. Mm-hmm. You know, two years after the, the uh, Corvette de- debuted, and it had it was an all-steel body. It had roll-up-and-down windows. It had heating and air conditioning, automatic trim, everything that the average person wanted for a personal car. And they killed the Corvette in sales. 
So management looked at that and said, you know, this Corvette deal is just a total loser. We'll, we're going to cancel the whole program. And what they did, they canceled the program. This was a transition where Harley Earl was just retiring and his protege who had worked for him for many, 20 years or so, was coming in to take over. And that was Bill Mitchell. And the first thing Bill Mitchell wanted to do was resurrect the Corvette. But he couldn't do it because management had already killed off the program. So he could not take his idea of making a new, better Corvette up to the Chevrolet studio and design it up there. So what he did, he had gone to Italy and he had seen a whole bunch of great cars at the Turin show in uh, the summer of 1957. And there were a bunch of cars over there that he really liked. And they were all, at that time, the Europeans were all into these little record cars. They were beautiful little aerodynamic shapes with little forms, the tire forms over each of the four wheels. And uh, Fiat was doing some, Stangolini was doing some, Alfa Romeo was doing some. And uh, they were all competing on with these types of cars. And he saw that this particular theme looked like it had been accepted and it was and was being used to promote those cars. So he took a bunch of photographs with those and he came back to the United States and he knew he couldn't take it up to Chevrolet with the idea. So he took it down to the Advanced Concept Studio where I was working. And the Advanced Concept Studios at that time were kind of a place where they put young new designers to see what they could do. And we had three or four young guys in there that were really top designers. So you know, we're all in there working on this advanced stuff, and one day Bill Mitchell walks in. Of course, none of us had ever worked with him personally at all. He was far above us. And he he was a very just open, wonderful guy. And he just said, come on over here, fellas. I want to talk to you. And we're all looking at each other, and we're going, Bill Mitchell wants to talk to us. So wow. And we're just, I mean, we're absolutely blown away. And he explained what he'd done. He'd gone over to Italy and he'd seen these cars and everything. And he said, and what I'm trying to do is tell you that I want you guys to design the new Corvette. And we're all looking at each other going, mm, I don't think so because the cars, the production, the real cars get designed upstairs with the advanced designers. So he explained what was going on. And he says, there's no way that we can do this car legally upstairs. Uh, because management has killed us off. So he says, and he laid out all these pictures of the picture of the cars that he'd seen in Italy, and he says, this is the theme, this is the direction that I want to go. I want to have this aerodynamic shape with little shapes over each tire, and, stuff. and I want it to be a coupe, because we have to be able to compete in the American market with a Thunderbird, whatever. And so he gave us a brief of what he wanted to do, and he said, okay, I'm going to give you a few days, and I want you guys to put all your stuff up on the wall and tell me what your interpretation of this idea is. And walked out and left us with the thing, and we look at each other, and we're going, no, he's got to be both probably going to the studio and doing the same thing. But as it turned out, he didn't. He was keeping the whole thing secret in our studio, and it was just a matter of perfect timing for me. And so when he came back in a few days later, you know, we'd all put our work up on the wall and we had all kinds of stuff, but it was all based on this theme. And he came in and he walked around very carefully and he looked at everything, not saying a word to anything. He took another lap around the room and stuff and stopped in front of one sketch and he 
looked at it, and he said, okay, who did this? And I raised my hand, I said, I, I did it, Mr. Mitchell. And he said, okay, all the rest of you guys, he said, this is the best thing that I've seen out there, but now your job is to do something better, and I want you all to compete and come up with something better than this thing. So that thing was put up on the wall, and everybody said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And he said, I'll be back in a week or so. He was going to another show or something. And he came back a week later and did the same thing. And he walked around the room, and he said, picked another one off the wall and said, who did that? And I raised my hand. He said, okay, well, what's your name? Now that we'd had some sort of you know, conversation, I'd won the contest twice. He said, okay. Uh, I want you to take the lead on this thing, and I want you to be the lead designer on this particular thing and do just what I tell you. And that's the way he designed the car. So I was his pencil. I was the interpretation for his ideas. And we went through several iterations to, to get what he wanted until finally there was one sketch on the wall. We pulled down. He said, okay, this is it. This is the direction we're going. And the next stage is I want you to build a model on the thing. So then the thing now had uh, an official XP number on it. But by this time, you know, when we started building the, the model and got that done and started into making a full size and clay, management discovered what was going on oh. to Mitchell. And they told him, you know, they, they really set him down and they, you know, it's something he could have lost his job. But he was by then he was a vice president with 24 years of work there. And there was no way they were going to actually fire him, but uh, they could kill the whole program. So they told him, they said, you know, uh, if you want to continue with this thing, uh, understand that you're doing it all on your own. It can't have the Chevrolet name on it. It cannot have the Corvette name on it. And you're going to have to pay for it all yourself. And he put up the bucks to continue building the car. And so he owned the car that we were building at General Motors. Wow. And, and he, he did it all himself. And uh, now, of course, he had complete control of it because it was his money in it and doing it. And that's where, you know, Zora came over. And Zora was always trying to pitch something that was even more advanced. He even at that time wanted to, to go into a mid-engine car. So he could see what was happening, and he was saying, no, 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 this, this has to be a new mid-engine car. And, uh, and Mitchell said, no, it's going to be this coupe just the way I want it, you know. So they had several arguments on the way it was going on, but Zora had no power over the thing because Chevrolet Engineering wasn't putting any money into the program. Bill was doing it all on his own pocket. So there was no way he could do it. So he'd come over. And uh, he put a lot of ideas into the car, and, and we came up with an advanced chassis underneath it where the transmission was at the rear with better full independent suspension and everything. And uh, so that was the way the car was designed. And then when it finally came out to actually doing a prototype to do it that way, it was so expensive uh, that uh, there wasn't any money to, to completely engineer the thing over at uh, Chevrolet Engineering and stuff. So at that point, uh, the uh, young designer that I said that had gone back to, to Porsche went to uh, to, uh, to Harley Earl originally, and it said, you know, what we should do is build a car that you want to do, but he says, to do it right, 
we've got to do it with a space frame chassis and make a real, real race car out of it. So they bought a 300 SL, they pulled the body off it, and they built the SS Corvette. And that was the, the first real prototype race car that had been done at uh, GM. And that was in 1957. It showed up there. And the only problem with it is that the engineers wouldn't believe that it had to have disc brakes. And consequently, it just wasn't competitive. You know, Jaguar had already had disc brakes since, uh, oh, 1955 or so. And they were state-of-the-art for any performance cars. But people at that time in, in the Detroit area didn't really understand performance cars. And they would not bend to the idea of putting disc brakes, which meant, of course, you know, buying the license and building all the stuff on it. So they kept trying to make bigger and better brakes on it. And they made some fabulous drum brakes, you know. They used uh, Buick drums, which were all aluminum and, and special stuff. Pete, you know what? We're up against the clock again, but I'll tell you what we're going to have to do here. We're going to have to do this. This is going to go into part three. Are you game for part three? Talk to you later. No, 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 no. Don't leave yet. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just want to say thanks for coming on the show, but we're going to have to do part three because this is just way too much fun. I truly enjoy this story. I mean, it's fascinating because you wrote a book also, and we'll have to talk about the next time too, the book on everything. But Pete, I want to thank you very much, and I look forward to doing part three with Peter Brock, the foremost American automobile designer. How about that? Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it very much. Okay. Talk to you later, Robin. Okay. I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget, check us out every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. Bring on food. Bring on food.